Miracy. What has been more a part of every conversation this year is we don't have time for that. We don't have time for that. We don't have time for that conversation. And really like, so how long has it taken you to clean up the last mess that got created because you didn't have time to have the conversation or make a decision or whatever? I'm Sharon Richmond. Welcome to To Lead is Human. For more than 30 years, I've run a business called Leading Large, helping C-level executives have greater impact. We work together to clarify their priorities, energize their organizations, and build cultures of accountability and respect. In this podcast, we highlight ways that you can supercharge your leadership by introducing you to real-life leaders, executives who have intentionally built organizations where the leadership, bottom line, and employees all thrive together. These successful business leaders demonstrate the principles of leading large. They know that as leaders, the power they gain based on their position demands an equal measure of accountability to their customers, employees, shareholders, and communities. Our guests lead high-performing organizations, delivering stellar value to their customers, clients, and stakeholders, while also prioritizing building organizations that provide purpose, meaning, and a healthy work environment for employees. In each episode, we get to learn from the challenges and successes they've experienced on their leadership journey. Today, I have a special treat for you. I've invited two top executive coaches to join me, and we're gonna talk about the most common challenges we hear from executives, as well as how we've seen them grow through these challenges to reach greater success as leaders of their organizations. My guests today are Dr. John Austin and Ms. Pam Fox Rollin. John is an internationally recognized coach to business leaders on safety and human performance. A former professor of psychology at Western Michigan University, Dr. Austin has trained many master's and doctoral students, quite a few of whom are now professors themselves. John's company, Reaching Results, helps clients improve productivity, safety, leadership, and management across a wide range of industries. Together, his clients have delivered over 10,000 safety operations and quality improvement projects that have generated millions of dollars in improvements. And John has recently released a new book, Results, The Science-Based Approach to Better Productivity, Profitability, and Safety. Pam Fox Rollin is an executive coach and facilitator and a dear friend of mine who's worked for 20 years to strengthen senior leadership teams and improve coordination across key functions especially in the healthcare and technology industries. She is, as I am, based in Silicon Valley and also works with leaders all around the globe. Pam's clients have included Fortune 100 companies, PE-backed acquiring organizations, B Corps, fast-growing companies, consulting firms, and NGOs, so pretty much any kind of organization you could think of. Pam is the author of 42 Rules for Your New Leadership Role, the manual they didn't hand you when you made VP director or manager, and the co-author of the recently published book, Growing Groups into Teens, real life stories of people who get results and thrive together. I couldn't be happier to welcome the two of you here today, Pam and John, first to meet one another and second to share some of what you've seen over your long careers as coaches. So I've brought us together because as executive coaches, we're in the trenches, so to speak with leaders every day. We see their challenges, we hear their pain points, we celebrate their successes, 
And today, as we're coming close to the end of the year, the three of us are going to offer listeners some insights on what are the top challenges executive face and how can they grow through these challenges? So maybe the place to start is with what brings leaders to coaching in the first place. And I'll start with a slight preamble. In the early days of executive coaching, so a few decades back, when all three of us were already doing this work, I know I was often called into what I like to call fix Fred. And what that means is, oh, we have a problem leader and I want you to come in and help them overcome what we think their problems are. And very often that turned out to be something very often that felt quite remedial to those leaders, but even more importantly, it often led to insights about different functional issues in the team itself, not just with the person. I'm not seeing that the same today. Today, most of my clients come to me on their own, recognizing areas where they've wanted to accelerate their own growth. And a few of the common issues that I've been hearing lately are, especially in the earlier stage companies, providing adequate clarity direction and focus priorities for their fast-growing organizations, managing their own emotions, especially when they're frustrated or disappointed, and micromanaging people instead of actually managing poor performance. So those are a couple things I hear. Let's hear from the two of you. Pam, why don't you start? What are some of the common challenges that leaders bring to you? What are those struggles that you find in common? Yeah, first of all, just super glad to be here with both of you. And Sharon, I love your podcast. Thank you. So as you said, now more often it is people who are in new contexts or they're envisioning new contexts for themselves. So maybe they have been VP at a very big company and they're coming in to be an EVP at a smaller company with a different financing structure, with a different organizing board. Maybe the founder is their CEO and they're like, okay, I've been successful in that environment. How do I become successful in this environment? I'm already starting to sense that will take something different from me than I've had before. Or I am used to leading technologists and now I am leading a substantial cross-functional initiative or maybe I'm now chief product officer for a company and have to work with everybody and E-team generally works in a hub-and-spoke manner, and I find myself playing the connective tissue, and I want to make sure I'm having the right sorts of conversations. There's also a theme that I'll call out around decision-making. I think I make great decisions most of the time, but gosh, help me, the other people around me, they just can't make decisions. And so how do we actually create a system we very soon get to? How do we create a system where everybody is making their appropriate decisions with the appropriate consultation and the leader is not becoming decision-maker-in-chief. That's great. John, what are you hearing? Well, thanks for having me, Sharon. I really appreciate this. I love what you do and how you do it. And uh, so I'm honored to be here. And, you know, I just want to listen to the two of you with those topics. I mean, my gosh, they're perfect. And I've seen some of them as well. But I think about this in terms of three categories or three areas. It's almost like in my mind, it's like a Venn diagram, really. A lot of the challenges are involving self-management. So, you know, I'm a behavioral psychologist, so I come at this from a behavioral perspective, right? Like Sharon knows I'm like into the nitty gritty and the observational stuff. So it's, can you manage your own behavior in the right ways, in the right context? Can you manage your relationships with people? So it's relationship management. And can you manage performance of yourself and your teams? So it's performance management. 
And those buckets are broad, right? Like there are entire psychological literatures <laughs> associated with each one, right? And so the list goes on and on. But I think that in thinking about over the past 30 years or so, the challenges that I've worked with leaders have probably all fallen into one or more of those categories. That's a really useful bucketing strategy, I think. And I, as I was just thinking about the things I listed, I think they're quite similar, actually. So let's just pick one to start with. Pam, do you want to start with the changing contexts and transitions? I think it's kind of nice to start with, what if you're coming into a new role or taking on a context you haven't had before? What do you think the root causes of this seem to be? And uh, of course, John, we'll both weigh in also if we have anything to add. Yeah. So we all know leaders grapple with the question of where are we going? And that's a fabulous question that we love to accompany them with. There's a more fundamental question of where am I? Where am I? And then where are we? <laughs> and who is this we that we are? <laughs> and starting grounded in that reality. And humans sometimes struggle to recognize what areas of the context have switched up. And often because it's really hard to figure that out alone. And I'm sure one of the things we're going to get to is this tendency of leaders to think alone. And it's really hard to grok a new context inside your own head. So to give an example, one of our students, both Sharon and I have done things for a long time at Stanford Business School. And so I had a pleasure to work with an alum from a later year than we were who had gone into private equity and investment analysis management. And he got that bug that says, I want to be an operator. I am going to lead. <laughs> and so one of the portfolio companies came up where it just seemed like this was the chance. And he actually wound up taking the CEO role there. So that's when we started working together. And that journey of how do you go from looking at it as a bunch of spreadsheets that need to produce a certain output at the end of it to a mishmash of people, none of whom you hire, who were all there, hundreds of them just there. And he's done amazingly and grown the company tremendously. But one of the things that strikes me about his leadership that was natural, and then I'll share something that really had to be learned, is he had more patience than most of the leaders that I work with. And he had that ability to say, yes, this is a mess over here, and that mess can sit for a while until I get to it. I will be creating the conditions for success over here. What is less obvious is the kind of rhythm of conversations and structures that you need across a large organization that you don't need across an investment management company with a dozen people. But you really need it when you're talking about hundreds of people who need to kind of be all on the same page. And the rhythms that you need to put in to make that happen are not obvious for somebody who's never seen it. What are some of those rhythms, just as you reflect back on what you talked with him about, if you can remember? Yeah, yeah. So how do you set up a cascade so that everybody knows the things that everybody needs to know? How do you embargo information that isn't actually ready to go beyond a certain set of people. Sometimes we talk in Silicon Valley as if candor is an unmitigated good, but there are times when we're sharing a story that is not ours to share, <laughs> and it's not the time yet to share it. And particularly for clients in public companies, there are rules 
about how that works. So how do you be a person as he is, who is high integrity, grounded in truth, and be able to build a physiology that can say, ah, I can't speak to that yet. I'll be back when I can speak to that. Um, so one is about those rhythms of sharing information and the standards of sharing information. And another is about cycles of goals. I've worked with a number of clients to put in OKRs. And one 26-year-old CEO who actually he and his company went on to do very, very well, very bright, all of that. But he was really at the early stages of being a CEO. And he thought OKRs were actually about what was in the spreadsheet. And he didn't understand why they would want to have conversations every six weeks to talk about it because he's like, you can just code red, yellow, green in the spreadsheet. We don't need to talk at all. And for him to start to see that human commitment is best expressed to other humans as a growth area. And then another, I'll give one more rhythm of conversation is about one-to-ones and how do you get in a cycle with people? It doesn't have to be formulaic. But a cycle where there's a base of trust and understanding so that when a problem occurs or a fast opportunity you need to move on, you're not first trying to figure out who each other is, where you are, what's important to you, how you like to work, all of that stuff, but you have a base of relationship to work from. I can see you nodding vigorously, John. Would you like to add on here? Oh, man, I just I want to know, like, let's dive in. How do you do that? You know, I just I'm fascinated by the whole thing. I've been a student of conversations and more specifically questions over the past probably been five years, really, or seven years that I've really dove into it. And, you know, there was a whole series in the Harvard Business Review on leaders asking questions. And there's, the studies have shown that you are more likable when you ask questions rather than make statements. You learn more, you develop relationships faster. You know, the book Humble Inquiry came out, right? Where you ask questions that you don't know the answer to. And so anyway, that's why I was vigorously nodding because like, boy, how do you teach people how to have those conversations? Because I'll tell you a story real quick. I work with groups of leaders often and often executives, but also not sometimes. So in a manufacturing organization, I worked with leaders at all levels and the job was the ask was to go and talk to your team members and ask them some questions, right? And they're like, great, do it. All right, go away. Did you do it? No, I didn't. Why not? Didn't know what ask. I didn't know what questions to ask them. It was like that simple, right? And so a colleague of mine came up with a box of like a hundred probing questions that you could ask. And so then it was like, all right, we'll take a card or take five cards with you and just ask them throughout the day and see what happened. And that was enough to get people to start to exchange ideas and to just be curious about what their team was thinking, acting on, working on or whatever. I'm interested, like, how do you get people to have those conversations? So it's quite interesting that you ask that as a question, because one of the things that I recently talked with one of my clients about was to keep track for themselves in a meeting of, how many times did you ask a question or make a statement? And I just am like, keep a list, just do a little tick list, you know, and you'll see for yourself and then reflect on how well did that go and see what seems to bring people in and elevate their energy and enthusiasm for the topic. So you just reminded me of like a great question that I've asked clients before. And the first time you ask it, it always produces surprise and then dismay. And it's what's your question to statement ratio? Right. And they're like, first, they're like, what? (laughs) 
you're more academic, I suppose, in your phraseology, but it's the same exact question. Right. It's the same question. Are you telling people stuff? Are you asking? Are you starting from a place of learning and curiosity? Or are you starting from a place of, oh, my God, please just do what I say to do? Which we all know both can be natural and there are times that are appropriate for each. But Pam, what else could you add? Like, how do you teach people this? Or how do you invite their learning, I should really say? Yeah. So one is what we're talking about right now is we role model it. We come with questions and sometimes I come with statements, and, but often we come with questions for them. And I would also assert that that's not enough because we can role model for a very long time before somebody picks things up. <laughs> Sharon and I have both have 21-year-olds. And so we know what we're role modeling. <laughs> I have a 15-year-old, so I'm a little behind, but with you. And maybe yours picks up everything you've been role modeling. I think it works to pair those together and to both role model and say, I'm highlighting this to you because you may find it useful to ask more questions than you are currently asking. And you know what? That in itself, this is so meta, is something that they can take as they mentor their team members is to say, I'm pointing the spotlight on, for example, I'm asking them about the relationship between you as head of product and your partners in engineering and marketing. What are the conversations? What are the strengths and where are the gaps in your relationship? And I'm asking you that because I think it's important to highlight our relationships as we work together. Yeah. And that's another thing questions do, right? They show people what you think is important. Yeah, that's great. And this is a great reminder to the listeners that when you're leading, you can point attention to what you're curious about by asking. And if people don't pick up on it, you can become more explicit. But often you can really guide a conversation. I think most of the leaders that we've had on the show so far talk about the importance of curiosity, and they often also talk about humility. So just thinking about those two things in the context of this conversation, I think you know, is there something that you've found helps people recognize the right balance of humility and ego? I don't know. Something often in my world is explicit feedback, you know, like from someone who can really pay close attention to the subtle behaviors that happen during conversations. So, you know, during that meeting, you were super confident and that was great. And yet you could have asked a few questions or gotten input and maybe, you know, even more effective. You just reminded me, John, that one, I had a recent conversation with a client where it was in the middle of our conversation. I noticed that he was demonstrating with me the exact behaviors that he had gotten some pretty negative feedback on from his colleagues. And I stopped in the middle of the conversation and I said to him, you know, let me just point out that in this moment, I'm noticing that the impact on me is similar. You talked over me, you interrupted, I didn't hear you acknowledge the question I asked. I didn't hear you answer the question, and you're very attached to defending your perspective. This sounds like something you've heard before. And that, you know, people who haven't worked with a coach before might not know that that kind of feedback in the context of a confidential, trusting, thought partner relationship can be very powerful. It was very powerful to him. Yeah, that's the gold right there, because you can almost guarantee that none of his peers told him. It's like, well, we just don't like him. We're not going to tell him why. <laughs> so helpful. That's hilarious, John. 
Right. No one wants to tell him. Like, you're it, Sharon. You have to tell him. <laughs> I mean, I embrace that with as much humility as I can muster because, you know, my experience may not match everyone's experience. But if I'm having that experience in the moment, I'm hoping it's something we can learn from together that we can explore together. There was a perspective that I heard about feedback that has been powerful in my work, and I wish I remembered who it was, who I learned this from. And that is that people are experts in the impact of other people's stuff on them. So for example, if I'm debriefing with, let's say, a senior vice president who just had a meeting with their CEO, and to say, where in that did you feel most energized? What, if anything, happened that you just went down in resignation and the part that really influenced me from this perspective was not to rely on the person that I'm asking feedback from for solutions. And I think that's where we sometimes get, a well, what should I do differently? But we're asking people to share with us the gold of the feedback that comes from the impact that person has on them. Yeah. And so that was, you know, you can imagine that's kind of where I went next with that client. I don't feel valued. I don't feel respected. I don't feel heard. And I know you value respect and hear me, but I can't feel it right now because of this behavioral engagement, this style of engagement. So I'm thinking maybe we could turn a little bit. I, I really think we've got a nice entree into the topic of self-management. And so, John, maybe you could walk us through a little bit how you address this and think about this with your mind, thinking about a listener here who's like, how can I do better at that? Yeah. Self-management, I think, really means what it sounds like to me. It means managing your own behavior or, or acting in the way that you want to act. That's the way that I think about it. And it's complicated, I think, because leaders operate in so many different environments and contexts. And, you know, to Pam's point earlier, all of those things about what to disclose and not disclose and how to talk about goals and how to think about conversations, these are really complex behaviors when you start to think about it. So the way that I think about it is really based on behavioral science and the research over the years. That research, if you summarize it broadly, indicates that the main drivers of our behavior are biology, our history, and our environment. And the one that we have any influence over, the only one really that we have any influence over is our environment. And so if we're going to look to how to change our own behavior or the behavior of other people, the key is always in the environment. And by environment, that means the physical environment. It means the social environment. It might even mean the physiological kind of environment I'm bringing into this. Like, let's say I didn't get enough sleep last night or I'm sick or I haven't been working out or I ate too much or something like that. That's going to change my behavior too, right? And so there are a finite number of factors that you can start to focus on when you narrow it down to, all right, so how do I create the right situation where I'm going to like behave in the way I want to? I think, you know, one of the things that you mentioned earlier, Sharon, was like emotional regulation or self-regulation. That's a big part of self-management that I hear leaders, that I work with leaders who have a difficult time with it. So they're super passionate about their work and someone does something that kind of pushes one of their buttons and shows that that person doesn't care in their eyes. I've been working with uh, someone recently who, if she is called out in a meeting in her mind, like targeted... No one else thinks she's being targeted, but she feels like she's being targeted. She gets emotional and like aggressive, like I'm going to lash out and take care and like defend myself, right? Defensive. So like that's a thing that people struggle with. Yeah. And that's part of self-management. 
I'd love to give you a little story. I have had one of my most, the most clear client who ever came to me for help said, as I often do in like get to know you conversations. So how do you think coaching will help you? What would you like to gain from this journey? And he said, well, I know the problem. My people are all afraid of me. And this is a guy with, you know, several hundred employees in the organization. They're all afraid of me. I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. He's like, and I know exactly why they're afraid of me because I yell at them, but I can't stop yelling at them. And so we had some wonderful conversations about what's happening just before you yell. What are you thinking and feeling just before you start yelling? And listed out like thoughts and feelings and whatever. And one of the most interesting discoveries he offered is this would happen typically because he scheduled 30-minute meetings with groups of people. And he would start at 20 minutes feeling really impatient and frustrated if people weren't moving towards closure. And instead, we're starting to ask more questions. And one time I said, well, you know, how do you know whether you need a 30-minute meeting or a longer meeting? And he said, well, I just try to keep it to 30 minutes because it's more efficient. I was like, well, this doesn't sound efficient if you're yelling at people at the end of meetings and they're leaving focused on you being yelling at them rather than what we all agreed to do. And I want this to be clear to everybody. These are smart, capable people. They're no more flawed than any of us. They're just regular people with big jobs, mostly. And it was just so fascinating as he, and this was a client who did a lot of reflecting. So he'd leave that one meeting and the next time he'd come back and he'd go, I had three meetings and I didn't yell at anybody in those meetings. And I wrote down what I was thinking about instead. I'm like, what a great idea. So he literally dissected his own psychology and personal awareness to figure out, and we focus mostly in that case, just on thoughts and feelings, because often that's enough. It isn't always enough, but often it's enough to get you started. So I think that to me is just one of my very favorite examples of you can learn to manage your emotions by learning what they are and getting vocabulary to name them and then noticing what's happening inside of you before it happens. But that was my story on this self-management. Love it. Love it. The question I wanted to ask both of you is people have been talking now for a decade about authentic leadership. And I just am curious about your perspective on authentic leadership, personal leadership style. What do you think about this? Is it something that you spend a lot of energy on? How do you help people see or find their authentic leadership if that's a goal of theirs? Yeah, that's a great question. I do spend time on that in different, I think, using different language. And the language is more, hey, I'm going to give you 10 examples of how you could say this. And you could try one if you want but it really needs to be your words. I'm demonstrating the, the intent, right? So if we, I do a lot of work with having difficult conversations and I feel like having a model of something to say is a good step one, but the ultimate goal is to put it in your own words. And that's, I think, the authentic element, right? So I strongly encourage people to experiment. And then, you know, the first time might not be perfect, but the third or fourth time, it's really good. So I think that's how I think about it. So I have some different words, and that is, in the generative leadership tradition, we talk about care. We talk about an authentic expression of what you want to have happen in the world. And it could be that you want to make a dent in this industry. It could be that you want to make enough money to take your family on vacations that they could have never imagined. It could be like, whatever are the things? And then how are you taking care of what you care about? And leading authentically to me starts with really having that person be aware of it. It was so poignant. I was in a coaching conversation last week 
where this person who's nearly 40 and very accomplished said, this is the first time I've really looked inside of me to what I'm about, right? And so let's have authentic leadership start there. If we do things that are different than we've historically done, just like folding our hands in the other direction, it's gonna feel weird. And that doesn't mean it's inauthentic as it means that we're doing something we haven't done before. So helping them walk both sides of that journey, I think is part of what we do. That's lovely. Those are both lovely thoughts. I think for me, the thing I would add to it is I kind of think about overlapping Venn diagram of what makes you feel like you're leading from your core self, whoever you feel you are, and what does your organization need from you at this moment? And looking for the overlap there, recognizing that some of what you love doing may not be what is needed today. And some of what you love doing may be very needed today, but you have to be clear about it. And that I like to add to what both of you talked about to tailor it. So that's good. I'm happy with that little assessment. Pam, did you talk about becoming the decider in chief? Yes. Could you expand on that a little? And I'll connect that with what has been more a part of every conversation this year is we don't have time for that. We don't have time for that. We don't have time for that conversation. And really like, so how long has it taken you to clean up the last mess that got created because you didn't have time to have the conversation or make a decision or whatever? Like they get it really quickly because these are very smart people. But our business culture, our leadership culture right now is focused on immediate and going forward, not having a habit of reflection. Well, what does reflection have to do with decision making? So <laughs> often the priority is to make the fastest decision possible, not the decision that will necessarily get implemented the fastest and most thoroughly. And if we're going to think about implementing it to produce the results that we want, often there's some steps that you would take that you might not take if you just wanted a decision fast. And that doesn't matter if it's a small decision that will not create a lot of breakdowns. But if it's a big decision that creates breakdowns. And also, if you want to role model to other people how you make decisions in this organization, then there's some things that you need to do that truly do take time to check in to find out what other people care about, to find out what the organization needs, to put that up and stand side by side together and look at it. It's a really great point. You know, I remember back when we were doing, when we were in the throes of like the early days of large scale organization change management, we would always say, you know, this might be the best outcome, but will it be implementable? And if not, then what's the best one that we can easily implement? So this idea is that depending on how complex the decision is, how much interdependency there is, how significant the decision will be, and how important it is that there's alignment to the decision has a lot to do with what approach you choose. So again, for listeners, if that's something you're interested in, I'm sure you could reach out and ask any one of us and we'd be happy to tell you more about that. But I think just most specifically, sometimes you do as an executive make an autonomous decision. You decide by yourself. More often than not, you make consultative decisions where you get some input from relevant people who have perspectives that will help make sure that you're not missing the big picture or a multifaceted view of what's happening or what's being decided. And then I think most people are very familiar with the collaborative decision model, which is far more time consuming and should be reserved for the most important decisions, not the least important ones. 
So I'll just leave it at that as a high level overview of what you might learn. So anything else that you think like has been really helpful for clients in recognizing how to decide or how to lead decision making? Yeah, I just wanted to pull on that thread just a little bit more. You triggered something for me when you talked about the large scale organizational change efforts. I once gave a talk on this and, and the data suggests that 75% of organizational change initiatives fail. So I like to talk about the psychological safety climate, you know, and so if you're a leader and you've got an important decision, even if it's team-based and it's collaborative, uh, that you've gotten feedback and input from people, have they told you the truth? And I've just seen, I probably, we've all seen, I'm sure, so many examples of, you know, you're talking to one person and there's change and it's like, well, this is not going to work in a million years. Oh, really? Well, tell me why. Well, it's because X, Y, and Z It's very well thought out and all that sort of thing. They know exactly why it's not going to work. And then it comes up in the meeting and they won't say it, <laughs> right? And so the question I, I've become fascinated with is like, how do you create the right environment for that person to speak up and say what's on their mind? So give us a couple of high-level tips for that. I like to use live polling. It's a lot more efficient and just quicker. And you can write questions on the fly, put it into a PowerPoint, and people all respond. And then you see the data. And you can't tell who said what, but everyone can see the range of responses that are in the room. So I swear by that. And it's fascinating to me that so few organizations use it. Yeah. I use it in all my sessions with groups of leaders. And it gets, it's a great conversation starter. They can write a question that is just puts the, some will say puts the moose on the table or the elephant in the room or whatever, right? And no one knows who wrote the question and yet everyone answers it honestly because it's anonymous. So that's a real good technique. But everything else I believe is kind of a variant on that in terms of how do we make it feel safe and rewarding for people to say what's on their mind? What role do you see, John, for the things that lead up to the meeting, the day-to-day -day trustworthiness of that leader? And what guidance do you give them in creating a culture that is safe, that is rooted in how they act when it has nothing to do with those big issues? Oh, yeah, that is a great question. So one of my favorite books of all time is What Got You Here Won't Get You There, which listeners, if you have not read this, it is a must read in my view. And Marshall Goldsmith is brilliant in this area, right? And it's this idea that, you know, when someone comes to you, your momentary reaction in the moment when you're speaking to them says more than anything else, really, in terms of determining what they're likely to say next, right? So someone comes to you with bad news. What does your face look like? What's your posture look like? What does your body language look like? I think that's very true, John. And in fact, you know, I guess... I wish we had actually a whole session to talk about psychological safety and how one can help bring it about because it is that important in the modern organization. But I am mindful of, of both of your time. And so I'm going to ask you one of my standard questions, which is the name of the podcast is To Lead as Human. What does that mean to you? And John, why don't you start us off and then Pam? I think to me, to lead as human means that we're always influencing others every day every moment. So that's part of the human element. Acting as a human, I'm influencing anyone I interact with. And so it's worth being mindful of what I'm saying and doing. And am I having the effect that I hope I'm having? And that does that align with my values? So that's the way I think about it. Thank you. That's beautiful. Pam? That really is, John. If we think of leadership as engaging others in building something that matters 
to somebody. To lead as human tells me that we can all do that. It's accessible to anyone who listens enough to know what matters to somebody and who is willing to have the conversations and build the relationships where we can engage them in building it. I think of it as to lead as human, it's as natural as breathing. There isn't a person in the world who isn't leading someone or something somewhere who isn't inspiring action or discouraging action, who isn't opening up intelligences and conversations or closing them down. And so I just love thinking about to lead as human as you can do this. You can do this. You're a smart being and you can understand what will attract the attention of others and what will help bring out the best in them. And that to me is kind of at the heart of what I care about in our podcast. So I want to give you each a chance to say, because we always like to do a coaching tip. So do you have a coaching tip for a listener who's maybe been struggling with any one of the topics that you typically hear? Just name the challenge and, and a favorite tip. I'll start so you guys have a chance to think. So on the micromanaging versus delegation topic, I like to say to people, to senior executives specifically, if someone else can do the job 80% as well as you, now it's time for you to start coaching them to be able to take it on. So you don't just toss it over the wall and say, okay, I can't do this. I'm too busy. You do this. Instead to say, let's sit down and talk about how to do this. You tell me what you think. How would you go about it? What about this? What about that? Here's something I might think about. What would you do if that were true? And by doing that, you raise not only their confidence in taking on the delegation, but your own confidence in turning something over to them because you trust the way they think. I want to riff off what John said about so much of leadership happens in that moment when the person is right in front of you, whether it's on Zoom or in real life. And it's a useful time to remember that you have a body and your body is there to support you. And if you feel your feet on the floor and you're willing to give yourself the gift of a moment to breathe and center yourself before you show up to the next human being, it goes so much better. Beautiful. John? I want to riff on Pam's, and that is we are trained from an early age that the more we get done, the better we are more items we cross off the list, the more meetings we have, the more this, that, cars we have, houses, I don't know, whatever. And I want to just object to that and say that there's another way to think about it. And I think that the three of us all see this, I think, and it comes out in our language in this, in our discussion today. But what Pam said really moved me because that was setting yourself up to have the best interaction you can. And that's different than more. That's a qualitative difference, right? So what I want to offer is plan in, even if it's a minute of thinking time to your day, and if it's an hour, that's even better, right? But the more we think in a calm space, the better we form, the better we act, and the happier we are. Your outcomes will dramatically improve. That is very true. I can't thank the two of you enough for joining me today to talk about what we've learned from working with executives over all these years and offer some tips and some ideas and some encouragement, I hope, to listeners. Remember that we're in your corner. We think you can do this. So know that if you choose it, you can. 
I know listeners always like to know how they can get in touch with guests. And of course, they can always reach out to us, which they do. But Pam, how could people reach you if they'd like to find out more about you and the way you think and work? Sure. I am easily reachable. I think the only Pam Fox Rollin on LinkedIn and glad to connect there. Let me know that you discovered through this podcast and also go to altusgrowth.com. That is where you will find my work. And just so everyone knows, the last name spelling is R-O-L-L-I-N. Yes. No S. Thank you. John, how about you? I would say, you know, LinkedIn, Dr. John Austin. And my company is called Reaching Results. So you can go to reachingresults.com. If you'd like a free audio version of my book, my new book, you can have that at my website. And that is at reachingresults.com forward slash results dash toolkit. John, that's so, so generous of you. Thank you so much. I'm sure everyone will be so grateful. Thanks again for being here. It was such a gift to be able to have this conversation with the two of you. Thank you, Sharon. Thanks, Sharon. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this has been To Lead as Human. You can find out more about me at leadinglarge.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G, large.com. To Lead as Human is part of the Miracy FM podcast network, which also includes such shows as Soul Savvy Business and Making It. This episode was produced by Cynthia Lamb. Melissa Deal assembled the episode, and Marvin Del Rosario is the audio editor. Danny Eaney is our executive producer. So you don't miss upcoming episodes, please follow us on Miracy FM's YouTube channel or on your favorite podcast player. If you learned something useful today, please take a minute and leave us a starred review and tell your colleagues about this podcast also. The more leaders we can reach, the better for everyone following leaders today. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next time on To Lead as Human.